and welcome to another bonus episode of Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. I took time out from writing the second season to talk to Catherine Fellows, a DPhil candidate in history at St Peter's College, Oxford, to discuss the history of the House of Borgia, and in particular Rodrigo Borgia, who would go on to become Pope Alexander VI. How are things? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's Yeah, I'm grand. Um, thanks for joining me here I'm delighted right. no, thank you so much for asking it's so lovely actually to have an opportunity to talk about my research do you mind telling me a bit about your background then Catherine sure so um I have just finished my doctorate at St Peter's College Oxford um I've submitted a project which has a very long-winded title The Long Apprenticeship Rodrigo Borgia's Papal Vice-Chancellor 1457 to 1492 so essentially what it's focused on is the 35 years Rodrigo Borgia, later Pope Alexander VI, spent in the office as papal, of papal vice-chancellor. So essentially, that's the second most important office in the papal curia. That's the papal government. Uh, so what we did with the project was we looked at all the responsibilities Borgia had. So the main one is the administration of the papal chancery. So that is the largest department within the curia. The other two being the office of the major penitentiary, and the papal datary. So within the papal chancery, the biggest one Borgia has control over is the College of Abbreviators. So the members of this college, there's about 100 at any given point, were charged with overseeing the drafting and formation of papal documents. So that's papal bulls, letters, making sure they've not been falsified. Um, There's obviously been the big scandal at the time of the donation of Constantine. So just to try and get away from any documents being circulated without papal sort of stamps mm-hmm. on them. So individuals in this office actually paid most of the time to be members of this. So this, you can see where the sale of offices comes from. Um, if anyone's visited the Vatican museums and seen the picture of Sixtus IV giving Bartolomeo Platina the control of the papal sort of archives and library, he was actually a member of this college. So it's been really interesting to find these people in history and actually put them in Borgia's story. Fantastic. Just before we kind of get into it then, Catherine, can we give, just for some people who may not know necessarily who, who they were, where did they originally come from? So despite the um, the spelling, which is B-O-R-G-I-A, which is the Italian one, they're actually a Spanish family known as the Borja. So that's B-O-R-J-A. Um, like quite a lot uh, which has come out about the Borgias, their origins is quite patchy. The known ancestry of the 15th century Borgia family has been traced back as far as the Aragonese conquest of Valencia from the Moors in the first half of the 13th century, where uh, one of Borgia's sort of ancestors and other members of his family followed King James I of Aragon in his campaigns. Uh, And after the successful conquest of Valencia and sort of the areas surrounding it in 1240, the family was granted the right to distribute these lands around a place called Hasiva, to his family and followers. Although I've, I've actually not been to Hasseva still, it looks beautiful. So just for context, it's a small fortified hill town. It's got Roman origins and it looks out over this beautiful Valencian plain. So within Hasseva, the family settled and several of Borgia's ancestors held positions within sort of the local council. And his grandfather, who shares the first name, Rodrigo, was held in such high esteem by the ruler of Aragon, which is Pedro IV, Uh, to the extent that he was actually able to marry into a distinguished Catalan family. So quite a few of Borgia's contemporaries 
are split with how they saw Borgia's origins. Some, particularly Italians, dismissed them as upstarts, claiming that they came from nothing but the labouring poor around Valencia and sort of managed through bribery and other nefarious acts to sort of entrench themselves within society. Uh, but Borgia himself, we don't really know very much about how he viewed his family. Family for him was definitely very sort of at the heart of everything later that he does. But they always support he has quite noble heritage. How did they come to Italy then? It's the story really starts for the Borgias that we're sort of talking about today in the 15th century with Borgia's uncle. So that's Alfonso Borgia or Alonso Borgia. Uh, he came to Italy after studying at the University of Larida. So he is an eminent jurist. He specialises in both canon and civil law. But then seeing the sort of the fortunes in Spain perhaps weren't as grand as they would be at the heart of, I guess, Christendom at the time, he comes to Rome and in 1447 is made Cardinal of Santi Quattro Coronati in Rome. He then, the main catalyst is in, the con- in sort of the conclave in 1455. He is definitely not considered Pope material. He's very old. If we believe the reports of uh, Cardinal Piccolomini, later Pope Pius II, he's uh, quoted as decrepit, which I think is quite a harsh, a harsh way of looking at him. Um, because the conclave runs into stalemate, the cardinals need what's called a compromise candidate. So that is a cardinal who is usually infirm or old. If you can have both, then that's a winning formula for them. So what they hope from electing someone with these criteria is that it'll offer a short pontificate, which means that the conclave proceedings are brought to an end. The violence in the city is also curtailed. So with most papal, in fact, pretty much all papal conclaves, Rome erupts into violence during the period called Sedevacante, so the time of the empty throne. Basically, what happens is the social order is inverted. So the poor populace of Rome pillage uh, the palaces of cardinals that are thought that they could be elected, Roman families, basically anything that they can get their hands on, whilst at the other end of society, the nobility obviously have to face ransack of ruin. And this only comes to an end when a new pope is elected. So there's, you can see why they want to bring proceedings usually to an end very quickly. Was he seen as almost like a placeholder until they elected someone? Sure, yeah. So nobody thought he'd last very long, despite the fact he's obviously a very skilled and academic cardinal. Uh, they hoped that if he died quickly, they could regroup. Some of the cardinals, sort of the main players at the time, weren't in Rome. It would give them a chance, obviously, to return to um, the Apostolic Palace and a new conclave could elect someone probably a younger candidate who could govern the church better and for longer than Borgia could do. But in the end, he is he actually comes out of the election as Pope, so he becomes Pope Calixtus III. And it's really his election as Pope that drives the main Borgia narrative for the rest of the 15th and 16th centuries. And how did his pap- papacy go then? So it's mainly driven by um, the need to launch a new crusade against the Ottoman Turks. So two years before his election, Constantinople has fallen. So in 1453, the city falls to the Turks. And there's a huge amount of letters and sort of primary material about just how much of an impact this has on Western Christendom. Um, 
the humanists in particular saw it as a massive uh, detrimental event that knowledge and sort of the circulation of letters would come to an end. And for many, it was a gateway perhaps into to Europe, which then threatened sort of the rest of Christendom. So the majority of his pontificate is devoted to restarting a papal crusade alongside with establishing his family in Rome, which is where obviously we then get to the later Borgia family. So it's these very, it's these two, I guess, facets which come to sort of define his papacy, but without giving too much away, it doesn't go on for very long because he's ill. Um, so not much is achieved in scholarship. He's he sadly sits in between two very able popes. So we're probably guilty of judging him against his predecessor and particular successor, Pius II, who we know much more about. He left us possibly the clearest insight into life in the sort of papal government through his commentaries, which if people haven't read them, I really recommending it just for the amount of sarcasm and slander that there is in them. It makes for a really interesting read. He has a lot to say about his fellow cardinals, the rulers of Christendom, and sort of not just political and religious events. So it's, it's a real a real treat to read those. But his legacy has definitely, I guess, counterbalanced that of Calixtus. So Calixtus has been a bit shortchanged from what he actually probably could have gone on to do if he'd lived mm -hmm. longer. So after the end of Calixtus then, um, how were the Borgia kind of seen within Italy at this time or, or Rome or Florence even? Were they kind of seen as Spanish upstarts coming in, taking 100%. over? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's not good for the Borgias in 1458 when Calixtus dies. Um, it's been a while since they've had a foreign pontiff. I think actually the last one before Calixtus was another Spaniard, but that was an anti-pope. And then obviously you've had sort of the schism. So there's there's a lot of concern around non-Italian, particularly non-Roman pontiffs. So Calixtus dies in the summer. And as I said about sort of previous bouts of violence, this one is terrible across Rome for the Catalans. So they're effectively hunted down wherever they can be found. Um, murdered in terrible fashion and in a very public fashion to send a message to the Borgia um, nephews. So that's Rodrigo, who um, goes on to be Alexander VI, just about manages to stay away from or get consumed by the violence. And his brother, Pedro Luis, who has held a number of different positions in the city, actually has to be spirited out of Rome to um, one of the ports to flee back to Spain by one of Borgia's fellow cardinals who actually was elected Pope not long after this. Uh, but they survived by the skin of their teeth. Um, you see this real focused persecution of Catalans, not just in Rome, but it suddenly starts spreading out across where there's papal fortresses which are held by Catalans and Valencians. And it, it really is, a, I think, a real fundamental event for Borgia because it shows how difficult it is going to be if he's going to make a try for the papacy or at that time perhaps more pressingly to survive in Rome. Mm -hmm. And so how did they over overcome this Catherine today? Obviously they got back in again in a number of years but what what did they do next? So 
their survival I put down to perhaps this is me being biased now after working with on Rodrigo for so long it's down to his skill so under Calixtus he's made a cardinal at 25 which is not the youngest but obviously it's not representative of any experience at all his election sorry elevation to the college of cardinals is challenged by a number of his fellow cardinals because he they add nothing apart from showing that Calixtus is now probably guilty of nepotism so promoting family members over perhaps more deserving candidates and a year after he is elevated to the college of cardinals he's actually appointed papal vice chancellor so that is the second most important office um it's essentially done to back up his uncle's ailing position so he still has this role when he goes into the next conclave and it's certainly stacked against him that nobody thinks he'll survive the persecution of the catalans has shown that rome is not very receptive to foreigners and it really is credit to him that over the next sort of 20 plus years he builds on this opportunity he was given at such a young age to really become a master of diplomacy. So the Borgia family, I would argue, is able to survive because Borgia is a master diplomat who is able to court quite a number of Italian powers, gain a number of significant benefices which give him a foothold in both Italy and Spain. So ones like San Scolastica and Subiaco, which at the time is one of the most famous sort of monasteries in Italy. So he has this behind him, but these would not have been given without Borgia showing his own merit. So it really is due to him. And the fact he's he's very shrewd about this and he doesn't, unlike some of his other colleagues, get dragged into conflicts such as the Pazzi conspiracy. So that was the plan to murder the Medici of Florence in um, 1478. He stays away from most of the um, War of Ferrara in the late, in the sort of early 1480s. So this being diplomatic, essentially, I think, is the reason why the Borgias can survive the first mm-hmm. sort of the on, in an early onslaught of the Catalans. And it's why in 1492, despite the fact that obviously no one thinks he's going to be Pope, he is actually the only person that could probably be Pope because everybody else has been dragged into these conflicts. And obviously the church back then was a lot different than it is today. So it was ex- he had children. Did he have four children, Catherine? Or what, what, what was Goodness his family knows. circumstances? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the children, we don't really, I mean, because there's three at least from an unknown lady um, from quite early on. So from about, four, I think it's 1462, the first child uh, also called Pedro Luis so it's, it's going to be quite hard to differentiate between all the Borgia members who end up either being called Pedro Luis Giovanni or Rodrigo um, but you have three at least in his early career from an unknown lady and then I'd say the the three famous ones are by Vanotta Catane so she is a Roman lady she's actually fascinating in her own right she it's pretty remarkable because she's a, a hotel proprietor. So she's a woman that actually owns property in the heart of Rome. So Borgia apparently meets her, falls in love and has, I think, five children by her. But the three, I guess, ones that people would know are Cesare, Lucrezia and Giovanni, um, who 
stay in Rome for most of their life. Cesare uh, goes to France later on in his father's pontificate and then is um, captured and sent to Spain and dies in Spain. But Lucrezia and Giovanni stay in Rome. Lucrezia's blesser is used as a um, a pawn to sort of gain these diplomatic marriages. She's she's married three times by her father to gay, sort of satisfy his diplomatic needs that Rome has at the time. And Giovanni is murdered in this incredible event in 1497, which he wasn't the nicest person, if contemporary records are anything to to go by, but is is murdered one evening and is found a couple of days later, dragged out of the Tiber, numerous amounts of stab wounds, but has his money bag on his belt still. So it's obviously an act that's not triggered by sort of the monetary value that he has, but it launches this tirade from Alexander across Rome. Cardinals are called in and accused of the murder and it triggers what would have been if it had actually succeeded, one of the most incredible plans for a reform commission of the church, uh, definitely in the sort of the late medieval, early modern period, but unfortunately didn't amount to much. So they, they are fascinating in their own right, the children. Mm-hmm. My only concern with them is their stories are so fantastical that they sometimes threaten to consume what we know or sort of views on Borgia. So I always treat them separately, if that yeah, makes sense. Of course. And I suppose by contemporary television series as well, they can <laughs> they can oh, yeah. fictionalize they can fictionalize as much as they want. And they definitely can. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just going back to um, Alexander then, how was, because I was just reading in some of my research, the first number of years of his papacy didn't go too well. He had um, a rival in the shape of Charles VIII as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Obviously, then the French invade Italy and they sort of sweep down the peninsula virtually uncontested, get to the gates of Rome where they are met by Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, who is... Borgia's probably greatest adversary across his whole life. Um, whereas Borgia's a master diplomat, Delarova has got a terrible temper, which sort of manifests itself later when he's elected Pope Julius II as the name Papa Terribile. He is he's not a pleasant person. There's quite a few reports of him and Borgia, and actually with other cardinals having arguments in consistory. So that's when sort of the pontiff and the cardinals meet. So a very sort of public um, affair. And Della Rovere supports Charles and tries to get Charles to depose Alexander by using the claim that Borgia was only elected through simony. So you've got a king trying to invade Italy, but is also backed up by a pretty powerful member of Borgia's College of Cardinals. So it yeah, it really does cause him a lot of trouble as an understatement. But mm. yeah, Charles VIII's invasion and then sort of the later controversy, particularly when he goes through Florence um, and down, and it his invasion also changes the nature of warfare in Italy. So it, it moves away from this very sort of, I guess, art- artistic view to it really does then show the Italian peninsula, the absolute horrors of war. So it, it does decimate the peninsula. 
And did he still have um, close links to family back in Spain? Then was it was he did he try and maneuver a lot of his like obviously immediate family, but like kind of um, relatives in the positions of power within the papacy at this time, or what? What was his motives? Definitely within Rome. So if you look at the cardinals that Borgia elects across his pontificate, there are a number of Borgia relatives. In fact, the first one that is elevated to the College of Cardinals is. I'd say within a fortnight of Borgia being elected. So that makes a real statement from very early on that he is going to basically do what everybody at all his predecessors and as popes has done, which is to promote family members first. Um, if you go back through all of the popes he served under, definitely if it's not the first set of co- um, uh, cardinals elevated to college, it's the second one. So he's he's doing nothing new here, but it's very prevalent how many family members find their way into not just the College of Cardinals but positions across Rome. Um, He obviously elevates his own son Cesare to the College of Cardinals and then has to face the fact where we get this unprecedented event where you actually get a member of the College of Cardinals resigning from the College of Cardinals. Um, So Cesare decides that he wants to go down a much secular route and carve out a sort of an empire for, he says, for the family, but it's pretty much bet it's for himself. So you have two almost competing factions. You have Borgia and then you have his son trying to carve out empires across Rome, the papal states, but also they obviously still have their eyes set on Spain. Alexander as well, I suppose we can kind of come back to his family in a bit, but um, well, he was. I read that he was a patron of the arts as well, and he persuaded Michelangelo to draw plans for the redrawing of um, St. Peter's. Is, is that correct? I think so. I must admit, I because of moving to sort of the early part of his ecclesiastical career, don't get to spend much time on the later papacy. Um but it's something, I mean, from when we looked at it under sort of the time as Vice-Chancellor, the, the, his role as a patron, is re- it, there needs to be a lot of work still on this because not much is known. Obviously, the clearest example of it is Pinterocchio's beautiful Borgia apartments in the um, Apostolic Palace, which, I mean, there's, there's work that's consistently being done on those to look at the meaning, who's depicted in them. But it really is still an underappreciated and understudied part of sort of Borgia legacy. Um, it was fascinating actually to have a look at this, albeit not in too much detail, in the doctoral project. I looked at um, the legacy he leaves when he goes to Spain. So in Valencia's cathedral, he brings two artists with him from Rome and they redecorate the ceiling, which had been damaged by fire sort of several years before Borgia had come back to Spain. And that had actually brought the sort of the style of the Italian Renaissance to Spain for the first time. So quite a significant event, but is usually glossed over both this side of his pontificate and in his later one for events such as the French invasion, the quarrel with Savonarola, the death of his son, and then Borgia's own death. So I couldn't say for certain, but it probably, it sounds like something that, I know there were plans at the time to sort of, redevelop St Peter's um, that Borgia could have been involved with. Just going through your research, Katie, is there is there anything in particular that maybe I haven't seen or maybe a lot of people haven't maybe come across in through your research? Like so, so, certain things where you thought, 
I've, I've, you know, that isn't well known out there or that you would like to maybe touch on? Um, so, I mean, the, the study of the vice chancellor itself was the, the big one because there's not a study at all of the office itself. Um, now, having worked through the documents, I can kind of see why, because it's it's really hard to pinpoint what this office actually sort of the responsibilities it had. You can, I, I guess the closest we've been able to see is Borgia's invisible hand in the fact that one, nothing goes wrong and two, across the time he's in charge, business increases tenfold. So you wouldn't expect that from someone who's very lax in that one. So I, I guess the main one is the office itself. The 35 years then within that, they usually, if you look at most books on the Borgia, apart from two very specific examples, one of which I've actually got in front of me because it, it never leaves my side, is the Borgias by Michael Mallet. Um, there's one chapter on Borgia's early ecclesiastical career, which I read when I was doing my master's on a very different topic. And that for me as a doctoral student has been invaluable because it's the first time there's been a proper and a balance, because I mean, this is another problem we have with studying the Borgias, is most scholarship hasn't been balanced. It's very either pro-Borgia to the extent where it's anything meaningful gets covered under a layer of whitewash, or it's very anti-Borgia. So it, it's this chapter in this book was invaluable to my research. And the other one, which you have to sift between the lines because it is so disgustingly pro-Borgia, is by a Belgian historian called Peter de Roux, which has a whole volume. And now, once you take away the author's own personal bias and views of Borgia, was fascinating to open up this period um, because I hadn't really considered it. When I I think when anyone thinks of the Borgias, they don't think of him as a cardinal. They think of him as a pope who has children and particularly all the later events of his papacy cover up anything that he might have done beforehand, which means that anything meaningful is lost. Mm -hmm. So for me, this has always been a chance to rediscover the 35 years he's in this office versus 11 years he's pope. So I guess that was my main one. And just overall... And before we kind of finish off, what what do you think the legacy is of Alexander then? Like the Borgia obviously have this reputation for um corruption and placing their family members in high offices in order to have the family continue th- throughout the decades, I suppose, in power. Is that I also read as well, Catherine, you'd probably maybe be able to kind of tell me if I'm wrong or not. The Borgia also led to possibly the Protestant Reformation as well, due to their handling of the papacy at this time. Would that be correct? I'd say it definitely opens a gateway to it. Um, the legacy, it, I mean, I, it's purely down to, I think, what we think we know a lot about them, but actually the concrete evidence that we have is so scarce that you can credit pretty much the legacy to two individuals, one of which is the Roman um, diary, diary keeper Stefano Infezzura, who was active in Rome when Borgia, sort of towards the later part, Borgia's a cardinal, and particularly how he wrote about the conclave of 1492. So he is the first person to accuse Borgia of simony or simony. Um, And it's this record of it, which if you look at the historiography since then, 
has been a consistent theme throughout. So you can see the impact one individual has had that basically accusing the pontiff, the only reason you were elected is because you sold or people bought votes for rewards. So there, there is quite a, a lot, unfortunately, for Borgia of evidence to suggest that quite soon after his election, these rewards are given out. And the other individual is Cardinal Della Rovere. So Michael Mallet's introduction to his book actually credits most of what the legacy what legacy has survived with Borgias down to Della Rovere. Um, the fact that he quite publicly said he would never ever stay in the Borgia apartments in the Vatican when he's pontiff and that all these um, questions of immorality are raised by him has had such a profound impact on the legacy that you know, generations, not just historians and commentators, but uh, playwrights. So there's a fantastic, it's hardly ever been performed play on Borgia's election by the Jacobean playwright Barnaby Barnes. It's called The Devil's Charter, which played on the idea that was already prevalent in 1500 that Borgia was in league with the devil, which I wrote an article on it and it's just, it came out earlier this year. It was just fascinating to see how much of a sticking point that was um, and how much of a, a receptive audience that idea has had um so that's played itself out there and then obviously it's its most modern manifestation in the two tv series they play on the legacy of sort of immorality very heavily particularly the uh jeremy iron showtime one i found was uh very hard to separate fact from fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fantastic that it's reaching audiences in you know 2000. I think it was 2011 it came out. So it shows that you know, there's still an interest in it, but it raises the question, I guess, of accuracy and you know the amount of time. If I introduce what I do to people, particularly non-historians, I usually get, oh, how accurate is? TV shows like that, games like Assassin's Creed. So it's interesting to see how the legacies come down mm-hmm. generations. Um, if people do have a knowledge of them, it's usually it's negative. So you can see how much of an impact mm-hmm. two individuals have had. Mm-hmm. Plus, it makes a good story and it's and it sells. I mean, it has well. every ingredient, doesn't it, for a good story? Yeah. It's yeah. why it's such a pleasure to. To study them, as I always say, it's, there's never ever been a dull moment with them because they're always doing, they're always doing something. He's very much in communication with some of the most influential and wonderful characters of sort of the 15th century. Uh, if you like art, they cover art, buildings. Yeah, there, there's there's something for everyone, I think, with them and the fact that they're not a flash in the pan, but they don't have the the legacy of some of their contemporaries like the Medici, it makes for a really good investigation, I think. So it has been such a pleasure getting to know them and hopefully I still get to work on them for a little while longer. Perfect. That's brilliant. Um, Thanks very much, Kitty. I really appreciate this very quick run through the Borgia. And anytime you want to come on again and talk about any other research you've done or any papers or any TV shows you've written, come on on. (laughs) Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colm McGrath, with additional material by Annie McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, 
you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.